Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place in God's Story. I'm Jamie Don, And I'm Heather Strong-Moore. And today we are tackling a big topic. We are still talking about women in the Torah. And that means that we need to talk about laws about sexual violence and laws about the test for adultery and people caught in adultery. So this this episode this week has the potential to be fairly emotionally intense. Um, it's a little bit maybe more adult, um, but we invite you to still join with us because we do believe that God has some very hopeful and caring and healing words to share with his daughters and with his sons. So we hope that you'll hang in there with us. Let's dig in. So as we mentioned, we do want to give a little bit of a trigger warning. We are not going to be talking about sexual violence in any kind of graphic way, but the topic itself has the potential to be quite emotionally draining, especially for any survivors who are listening. And as we said, if you've got kids in the car, you may want to listen to it at a different time, depending on what you think that they're ready for. Uh, So we are going to talk about some stuff that may hit close to home. We're hoping that the gospel will also meet us there. So know yourself, know what is healthy for you. And we welcome anything that you need to do to take care of yourself. We support that. Yeah. So um, just as we do that, we actually do believe that there's so much hope in this story. And so Um, One of the things that I think is important in order for us to have that hopeful perspective is for us to read these passages in the fuller context of scripture. And so we're pulling passages out um, from the law. They are in the context of a covenantal God who is in relationship with his people. This is in the context of a bigger story and a bigger relationship. And so even the ways that we talked, um, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, we kind of talked about the way that we consider the law and what God's doing in um, creating a people that are set apart and that look differently uh, than the world around them. And so a lot of that um, we are bringing into this episode of this is a part of what it looks like for to um have a people set apart. And so uh, all of that is in that context of the larger story of scripture that God's writing and also the larger story of a need for a savior. And so um, some of this is to highlight sin and to highlight uh, the brokenness that has come into the story of God and the need that we have uh, for a hopeful story and a redemptive end to this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good, Jamie. And going off of that, I want to add a, a, some additional notes going off of last week about how we are to understand the law and even how Jesus himself talks about it. And so I do think the law is meant to give guidance for a well-ordered society, but not necessarily for a perfect society. I think the law is meant to restrain evil, but it's not able to fully eliminate evil. And Jesus says something interesting. He's questioned in Matthew 19 about laws about divorce. And this is what he says in verse eight. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. 
but from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus is acknowledging there is some element where the law is responding to human sin, to the hardness of heart of humanity, but that's not God's created intent. And so there are parts of the law that I wish would go further that I wish would completely condemn or eliminate various elements of social practices and human behavior. It doesn't fully. And I think we can acknowledge that and wrestle with that and know that there's something incomplete about the law. And we're actually, we will talk about that more at the end of the episode, but that Jesus says from the beginning, it was not so. And I do think that's what we should hold on to as we go into this topic is what was our created design? What were we meant to experience? This is not the fullness of what we were meant to experience. And so this is designed to restrain evil, to put parameters and limits around evil, but it wasn't going to eliminate it fully because that only happens through a movement of the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ, which they didn't have yet. Uh, so they are living in the, the already, but not yet. They're not fully receiving uh, everything that the Messiah has will bring. And so they're doing their best, but it's going to feel incomplete. And it's actually meant to feel incomplete because it's meant to make us long for something else. Right. I think we see that even uh, we talked about how Genesis three um, goes directly into Genesis four, which is a story of brothers killing each other. And so, um, that Mm -hmm. to me, that's always been this, such a clear picture of what the result of sin really is this damage that we do to one another in the midst of it. And the law really kind of limiting the way that that damage is, uh, experienced in some ways. And so, um, I would commend to you if you, if that kind of idea is new to you about like, that's a part of the law, putting boundaries around that. I always love the way that Dr. Esau McCauley um, mm-hmm. unpacks that idea. And mm-hmm. so I would say he does a great job with that as well. Yeah. His book reading while black is excellent because yeah, when we think about where I wish the law would go further, the law does not condemn slavery, specifically the enslavement of foreign people. And that's really troubling and has been gravely misused. And so his book does, I think, a wonderful job of addressing that. So yeah, highly recommend his work. Okay, well, we are staying within our purview, which is talking about women. So we're going to start with a section of scripture in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy, the law is most heavily condensed in Leviticus, but then is sprinkled through numbers in Deuteronomy as well. So in Deuteronomy 22 there is a section about sexual misconduct in general that starts with talking about incest and condemning very, uh, in no uncertain terms, any kind of incestuous relationships. And then uh, it's going to continue to talk more about sexual violence. So Jamie, would you like to read that for us? Yeah. So we're going to pick it up in verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, Both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, 
so you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Okay. Thanks, Jamie. So I'll summarize what's happening here in case it was hard to follow. So, and it's going to feel rough. So I'm just, yeah, giving you a heads up about that. Um, So there's kind of three scenarios that are being outlined. Um, Well, actually four, because we intentionally read the verse 22 about when men and women are both caught in adultery, um, there is a death penalty for both of them. And we will talk about that more later when we talk about adultery in more depth. Um, But so then there's a scenario of if a woman is being attacked by a man in the city. So in a public place, in a crowded place where there could be the opportunity for others to hear her cry for help. Um, But if she doesn't cry for help, then she's considered culpable. The second scenario is that if she's out in the open country when no one else is around and it would be meaningless for her to cry for help anyway, then only the man is culpable. And those are both scenarios applied to women who are engaged to someone else at the time. And so then the final scenario is if a woman who's not engaged is is assaulted by a man, then he is to marry her and he's never allowed to divorce her ever. Um, so this can feel very difficult through our modern lens. And what part of what we wanna do is try to couch it more fully in the context at the time. And that will be, I think, quite crucial for helping us make some good sense of this. So on the one hand, the first part can very much feel like victim blame of, well, if you didn't cry out, then you must have been consenting. And I I just don't think that's a helpful or healthy way to interpret it. Cause I just, I don't think that's how God feels. And we'll talk about it, but we have other scenarios of women who are assaulted, who didn't cry for help. Like there isn't a specific account of them crying for help and scripture still condemns it as, um, as a rape, as an undesired sexual assault. So I don't want us to think like the scripture is blaming women or being like, well, if you didn't do exactly the right thing, then you must've wanted it. That's just can't be the case. I think a significant part of what is going on here is that the scripture is affirming female bodily autonomy and is affirming a woman's right to resist that women are not to view themselves and men are not to view women as just being fair game at any given time, that their bodies are not available to men at any given time, that women are meant to have privacy and bodily autonomy at all times, and that there are steep penalties 
if a man violates that autonomy and that women don't have to feel passive or helpless of like, well, I guess it doesn't matter what happens to me and men just have a right to my body. But I think scripture is saying that's just not true. Men do not have a right to your body and you have a right to resist them if you are able. I think um, an illustration of that is what we see in in Genesis with Dinah. Uh, But I also think something I just want to throw out there is um, I've heard and Dr. Joe Vitale says this, um, that this word for rape is different than other places um, in the Hebrew scriptures. And so um, I don't know Hebrew. Uh, so I think what we have makes it, you know, look the same. Um, there's, she would say that this is maybe more, um, around this idea of like seduction and almost like a power differential. Um, and so that could perhaps explain some of that language around like crying for help of, um, if it's more of like a seduction and a power differential is, is that, um, part of what that's getting at in there. Um, so I think that's worth considering at least, and kind of, if that intrigues you, you can dive into the different Hebrew words there. Um, and so I think it's worth considering what that could potentially, um, uncover. And then I think the, story that we have in scripture I for me it's intriguing in light of this passage because um it's very clear how wrong it is and what we know is that Dinah the daughter of Leah whom she had born to Jacob um she was out to see her friends went out to see the women in the land and so she's out to see her friends and someone um rapes her and and uses his power, um, against her. And so, um, he, as in like authority power, he's a a prince of the land. And so we have this story that I think is very significant because there's Jacob's sons are indignant and take vengeance, um, which, you know, is not awesome, but also they are very clear of like, they say, should we accept that he treats our sister like a prostitute? And mm-hmm. so for them, their indignation is around like, we will not stand for a sister in our midst to be treated like this. And I think mm-hmm. there's actually a real lesson to be learned um, from the sons of Jacob about what it looks like for men to be indignant about um, a culture that normalizes rape and really that's what their father is kind of wanting to do in that moment um out of fear of the power differential there um but i think their indignation really speaks to us but what's significant in light of this passage too is that it's very clear that this is a- an assault and there's no indication that dinah like yells out mm-hmm. she does not cry out um mm-hmm. And yet scripture speaks very clearly about it. And so I think Mm -hmm. for those, the way that that kind of hits us as like, oh gosh, is this blaming the woman? Um, Scripture itself also doesn't do that. And so I think Mm -hmm. when we read those together, there's something significant there. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. So let's address the, the other scenario of if a woman is raped, who's not engaged that she, the man is to marry her, um, for sure through our modern lens that feels horrifying and that's okay for it to feel mm -hmm. horrifying now. Uh, I think we need to think about the cultural context of the time of what was the social implication of being raped if you were not engaged. And that meant you were no longer a virgin and that basically meant you weren't marriageable. And so for a young woman to be assaulted at that time period, and that would have been known to the community, it's kind of ending her social prospects. Like it's ending her future prospects that she'll likely not get married. She won't have children. She won't have any kind of status in the community. And that is like a second form of violence, really, that the first form of violence was the physical assault. And the second form of violence was essentially a character assassination of her. And so I think what scripture is doing, what God is doing in this situation is making sure that a sexual assault doesn't end your, your public life, that you are not, uh, that you're not robbed even further of your ability to lead a fruitful life moving forward. Um, so the point isn't, I think there's even been feminist commentary that's kind of scoffed at this passage and been like, so you're just saying that because you had sex, you have to get married. And actually, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that you're not allowed to rob a woman of her future and you're not allowed to use sexual violence as a double trauma for her. Uh, and so that's the, the, the restitution that has to be paid to an unmarried woman is you have to give her the status that you would have robbed her of. And I think it's really powerful that a man's never allowed to divorce her because it was actually relatively easy for men to divorce women in this time period. It was at least a little harder in Judaism than it was in the surrounding cultures, but it still was fairly easy. And again, Jesus is like, that's because you guys were jerks because <laughs> of your hardness of heart. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so she is is guaranteed security for the rest of her life. So I think that with our modern lens, we could look at that and say, what would what for us is the modern repercussions for women in society of sexual violence? And what would be a helpful corresponding punishment for men? Um, because it can certainly damage women's social standing, not nearly in the same way that it did for women at that time. Um, and so it's not necessary for us to be married in order for us to move forward, but like careers can suffer from mm -hmm. sexual harassment and sexual violence in the workplace. Um, obviously people standing in the community can still be damaged depending on the type of situation. So I think we can look at this law and still think about what would be a modern equivalent of restitution for women that would allow women to have a guaranteed future and to have guaranteed security in society moving forward. Yeah, I think that's so good. And even I think when we hear like about a dowry and stuff like that, we um, 
I shrink at that. I'm like, oh gosh, that's mm-hmm. not, not great. But I think it's important to remember, like, this is a culture that's often in battles with surrounding tribes and nations. And there's a lot at stake for a woman who um, may lose her husband. And so um, often what would happen with the bride price is that it would be in basically like a special trust account um, that if you would lose your husband and your financial security that would come with that, uh, then the father would return that to the bride. And so I think there's something for me that's like really, I think when we remember the ways that the culture, there was a lot of risk that your husband would die. It's not um, Mm -hmm. quite the same now. And I think for us to see it, even through those eyes, the dowry piece of that, um, the the fact that there's a price to be paid for this woman is, feels horrible. And also there's so much there that's really protecting the woman. And I think um, really there's a lot of, severity to the punishments that we see in this passage and I think there's something to question what God is communicating from that um, severity as well Mm -hmm. yeah right so I do think what I hope people take from this is again it's okay for it to feel complicated and troubling Um, and scripture names sexual assault for what it is and very roundly condemns it and condemns, again, other forms of sexual abuse of incest and um, just other ways that women can be abused in relationships, both familial and outside of their family. And that there are strict penalties for men who would do this, that the scripture does have a high level of accountability if these things were to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think something that stuck out to me as we were reading this. And I think so often we say, you know, we obviously know that there's a cultural difference, but I think there's something different when we see a woman in that position in scripture. And so there is a situation where this is basically playing out. Tamar in second Samuel, she is assaulted by her half brother and, Mm -hmm. um, and she begs for him to marry her because she understands the implications for her own life. And so I think it kind of sounds out abstract until you see the Mm -hmm. actual women asking for that in some ways. And even that it, I'm not saying it makes it, you know, feel great whenever Mm -hmm. you see that, but I think there's a way for us to say, I actually cannot understand what it is to be a woman in the ancient Near East culture that I can try to, I can try to put myself in her shoes, but there's so much of that that really is outside of our um, comprehension in some ways. And so when we, I think, read it in our modern lens, we just miss that. And um, Heather, I wanted to bounce this off of you because I think Mm -hmm. There's something about it when we do that, that really, I think it's easy for us to see other ways that are, we've taken scripture and kind of colonizing 
ways of deciding that our mindset is the better way. And mm -hmm. I would say, certainly I'm not advocating for um, any sort of assault or, you know, women to not have authority in that. But I think it's a colonizer perspective to say, actually, I know better than Tamar. And, um, mm -hmm. and I want better for Tamar, for sure. I want her to live in a culture where she can go to therapy and experience mm -hmm. um, freedom in a different kind of way. But what freedom for Tamar looks like is for her to have the security of marriage and to not be threatened as a result of that. And I think when we say we know better, there's something really that should make us question our own selves when we have that kind of mindset about scripture, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very real because, you know, we have some archeological research and like we do have, I think an increasing, increasing access to historical research about the cultural context, but that it's still very removed. And I think that's a very real point that we don't live it. Uh, we, we can try to understand it, but we're not fully going to know what it was like for women at the time. And there is an element of us as modern readers, trusting that the Lord's desire was for the well-being of women and that they also knew what was best for them at the time as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think there should be a healthy humility to that of us knowing like, it was different and in ways that we can't fully um, engage or like fully understand. And so there might be some things that we under, like, like just acknowledge, I don't totally know, know what that was like. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to trust that there was something that made sense for them at the time. Right. Um, the last thing with that, that I'll say is in when we see a law really similar to this in Exodus um, that this is probably based off of, I think um, it's in a series of laws about social justice. And hmm. so there's laws about protecting the foreigner in your midst and not killing um, a stranger. And there's several kind of back-to-back -back laws that are very clearly social justice laws and that this is a piece of that. And so I think when we see, again, when we're informed by all of these other places where these things come up, we start to get a picture that this is compassion for women and really a protecting of them is in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And I think as we segue to talking about the test for adultery, I want to restate, and we may not have even said this explicitly yet, that there is a difference between, this should go without saying, but it's helpful to remind everyone, there's a difference between Israel having a covenant relationship with God, that they were a theocracy, who were a specific nation, that they were beholden to God, like they were committed to God, God was committed to them. And there's a difference between us as modern, for us Western Christians, reading this, especially in America, we tend to put ourselves, you've mentioned this before, Jamie, like we put ourselves in the place of Israel and that's just not accurate or helpful because then we are applying 
the nature of God's laws that was intended for a theocracy to our modern context. And that is not meant to translate. So we can draw the spirit of the law of what is God's desire for women to have bodily autonomy, to have restitution, to have protection in society. That can definitely still apply. But some of the specific ways that that is carried out, that's just not meant for modern societies. That's so important, I think, for us to remember because, um, yeah, when we do that, again, we're just, it's a, a way in which the law is not meant to be applied. And so when we do that, we're just taking things already out of context. So I'm so grateful for that reminder. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, let me, with that segue to our numbers passage in the test for adultery, because I do think the way that we need to read this passage is going to heavily center on stuff that's specific to Israel. And I'll unpack that more. But so the passage is numbers five verses 11 through 31. It's a very long passage and it can be a little bit convoluted to read aloud. So we're going to urge you to read it yourselves. If you are so inclined, I'm going to do my best to summarize it, knowing that that may or may not be uh, perfect, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Um, so it's called the test for adultery. It's basically if a man is suspicious of his wife, he's jealous, he's thinking that she is cheating on him, but he can't prove it, then he can take her to the temple and the priest will oversee a test where she he'll prepare some offerings, he'll prepare a drink that she will ingest. And essentially between her and the Lord, there will be a supernatural kind of divine ruling if you will, where it is God who will verify because God's the only one who knows whether she has been unfaithful or not. And what is tough and pretty grim is that if she has been adulterous, if she has been unfaithful, the drink that she's given will result in her becoming infertile. Um, however, if she's not been adulterous, she's fine she's free to go. And what is also a little troubling is at the end, it just says, and the man can just do like, he's fine at the end of it. Either way, he's fine. <laughs> um, so this is a little painful um, and just feels so strange because it just feels like men can haul women into the temple anytime they want if they are just jealous or paranoid. And then the women have to go through this whole thing. and there could be potentially very dire implications, consequences for her, and men don't have any consequences for seeking out the test. So all of that is okay. Like all of that is reasonable. A few things to try to help us make some sense of it. So one thing is that when we think about the implications of adultery, specifically for people who like adultery means that you were married. Um, so for married women, there was a significant implication around the land and inheritance laws. And again, as we understand Israel, God had a covenant with Israel to give them the promised land. And God says over and over again, 
the land is your inheritance from me. It's my gift to you. I'm giving it to you as an inheritance. And it was divided between the 12 tribes of Israel. So every tribe had a section of the land that was their ancestral inheritance, and they were to hand it down to their descendants forever. And so it was this guarantee of security. It was a guarantee of future prosperity. And it was a protection for the people that they would have a place of belonging. They would have a source of income and a source of wealth and um, something to pass to their children. It was meant to prevent generational poverty that you wouldn't fall into poverty if you lost your housing, that there was always a guarantee of a place for you to be. And this is what's tricky before the advent of modern science and like really very recent modern science of paternity tests. You can't prove who your dad is, but you can prove who your mom is when it came to that time period and until very recently. So this feels a little bit unfair, but it also just is a reality that's worth acknowledging that paternity was hard to clarify, but you always could prove maternity. And so there was just a higher responsibility for married women as they were having children that in order to protect the future for their children, those children needed to be with their husband so that they were guaranteed an inheritance. They were guaranteed a place in the land and they had a clear and stable future. And so at that time in Israel, this is not true for us now in Israel, for women to have married women to have children with multiple men was bringing uncertainty and chaos into inheritance laws and into the guarantee for their children. And so I do think that's something that is a significant part of why the implications of female adultery would be so severe is that it has implications for their whole society and for their descendants. Um, and actually what's kind of interesting and in some ways empowering now is in a little bit more modern Judaism, at least in Orthodox Judaism, the tradition is that your Jewishness is passed down through the maternal line. And so actually, if you have a Jewish father, but not a Jewish mother, you're not considered Jewish and you have to go through a formal conversion process to become Jewish. And so there has been from there a longer standing kind of honoring of women of, again, like we know for sure who our moms are, and that can be a really powerful, beautiful thing. And so we actually receive our heritage and our inheritance from our mothers. I love that. Uh, just that piece of it, because I do think it brings the picture of land into it, which is so important in particular for a people who are learning what it looks like to come out of wilderness into the promised land. And I think something that I just want to point out is, well, first of all, this passage is super weird. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I just think it just um, is. You are bringing, they're bringing an offering for um, basically in repentance for jealousy. And then they're mixing that with bitter water and with dust off the ground of the like tabernacle. There's a weird little concoction that's happening here. And I just mm -hmm. want to say like, 
it's pretty weird. And Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't love this situation, but I love that we have texts that are so strange because we can't then say that we understand everything. And we'll come back to that. But I just think for me, there's so much um, kind of to that of when we think that we understand and like can comprehend all the ways of God and even what, you know, faith, the impact of faith would be in our lives. It's not formulaic. In fact, um, mm-hmm. it, it's often a little bit strange. You take a little dust, you take a little bitter water <laughs> and, and you got this little uh, mixture here. But I think really uh, what the natural response would be in the body to this mixture is nothing really. You might have a stomach ache from eating some dirt or something like, but I mean, every, even when you think about like the dirt on the ground of the tabernacle, that's consecrated. Um, and so I think there's something for this, that it's important for us to see probably what's happening is a woman, if she has, you know, has something to confess that that's coming out in this moment between she and the priest. But other than that, really, it's a supernatural event for any response to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's kind of important for us to name that because the result is that really women would have this experience with a priest and that there would be some shame there for sure. But um, the it would take something very significant to happen for um, the response of an impact there, which is important, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I think is really valuable and something that's clearly positive that we can draw from, God is removing male accusers. The, the husband has no place in the the process, like in other than like initiating it, um, he has to be apart from that. The priest is just facilitating. He's not making any kind of ruling. And so I do think what's so interesting and helpful is that God is not allowing his daughters to just be victims of false accusations that could then ruin their lives. And men could just divorce them based on either like paranoia and jealousy, if someone's just controlling and jealous and they freak out, um, that there is a way for women to be able to prove that that is unfounded and that, yeah, men don't just get to make stuff up and then cast a woman aside, that there is a process where women can be, can receive justice and where, uh, it's not up to men. It's up to God. And I think we actually have the code that's likely like comparable in that time period from the ancient Near East. Like that's been uncovered from that King um, in a contemporary period to this. And the men could in that law just accuse their wives. And they, the result is that women should, it says throw themselves into the water is what the, Hammurabi's code says. And so um, 
I think it's important to also contrast it to this is very different than what's happening in the land. The law of the land is that women would automatically just be a victim to that accusation and that there really could be a death penalty um, just by the accusation. And instead, God is saying, come before me and I'll be the judge of that, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point that when we hold it up next to other contemporary laws of like other surrounding cultures, that it was so much more severe for women, like you're saying, yeah, that a man could just make the accusation and then that's it. Mm -hmm. And then a woman has to, yeah, has to drown herself. That's horrifying. And so again, it's, it doesn't mean that we need to be perfectly comfortable with this process um, and with that it still could result in infertility, which again, I think is more tied to the land and inheritance than necessarily just like a weird random punishment. Um, but that God is setting himself apart and has a different code and has a different way to enact the truth and to bring the truth to light that is protecting women from the like whimsy of men. Mm -hmm. Which we yeah. still see that like so much domestic violence is rooted in mm -hmm. jealousy and accusations. And so really the other thing this is doing is if a man would not go through this process and out of jealousy have some sort of violence towards the woman there would be that would be sin they would be held accountable for mm -hmm. that and so this is also really preventing women from experiencing impacts of potential domestic violence by mm -hmm. saying you have to go through the process here you don't just get to act on a whim um because there will be consequences for the men in that case as well mm -hmm. yeah that's so good yeah yeah. And I, another point I want to make as we think about these punishments, this punishment, specifically the story about adultery um, for sexual immorality and like sexual misconduct, it feels like it's all about women, that all the pressure is on women and that all the responsibility is on women and men can do whatever they want. Um, that's, there's a little bit <laughs> that happening. Um, but this is where, to your point at the beginning, Jamie, about how we need to read the Bible as a whole, and we need to read passages connected to the wider scripture, uh, scriptural narrative, that when it comes to the prophets, the prophets are constantly indicting Israel, and it would be primarily the kings and the men of Israel for their sexual misconduct. And the prophets are for generations calling this out and holding Israel accountable and saying, God sees you. God isn't just worried about the women in your community. It's the promiscuity of the Kings over and over again for generations. That was a catalyst for idol worship in the land. That idol worship often led to uh, cult prostitution at pagan temples that would have been deeply exploitative and would have been really similar to what we would think of today as sexual slavery or trafficking. Uh, and God is always telling them, this is not right. And I see what you're doing and I condemn it. And then ultimately it leads to the exile and the exile is a national reckoning and it is violent. There's a violent punishment that the nation of Israel receives at the hands of Babylon 
that God greenlights because of their generations of disobedience to God that included many things. You know, it included, like I said, idol worship and general distrust of God. It included child sacrifice to other gods. But again, part of that was their sexual misconduct and sexual exploitation and that God is not content with that going unpunished, that there is actually very significant accountability that God holds them to and significant repercussions for that. So I think so often when we are not reading the prophets, <laughs> um, we don't understand the, the justice of God and the heart of God, because when we know what makes God angry, we know what God cares about deeply. Mm-hmm. And God deeply cares about the vulnerable and the, uh, the exploited, the marginalized, and the prophets are constantly talking about that. So I would encourage us when you feel uncomfortable about the way these passages focus on women, spend some time in the prophets <laughs> um, because you're going to see some, some counter-programming <laughs> of um, men in power, especially being held to detailed account for the ways that they have brought harm and violence into their society. Yeah. And I think we read a verse last week from Ezekiel around the way that women are exploited and really that it's not just men being held accountable, but also specifically for the exploitation of women and widows and orphans. And so Mm -hmm. again, that thread of God is a God who loves justice and he holds people accountable to the way that they treat the vulnerable in their midst. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. So then also I do think if you're reading the test for adultery and you're feeling troubled, it's very helpful to turn to John eight and Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. And we are going to read this. So it picks up at the very end of chapter seven. So it starts in chapter seven, verse 53 and goes through chapter eight, verse 11. So I'm going to read it and it will probably be somewhat familiar, but this might just give us um, a deeper appreciation of it. So they each went out to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. So a couple really interesting things are happening here. One if she's caught in the act of adultery, that means they caught the man and yet the man is not here. So a a couple of things might be happening. The uh, religious leaders might be trying to trap Jesus and see if he knows the law to know the man should be here also, or they might just not care 
or maybe they knew the guy and weren't were as worried about him and were only worried about the woman. But no matter what, they're they're wrong for this. Like it is true that according to the Mosaic law, she is culpable and it does constitute the death penalty, but it's supposed to be for both parties, not only her. The man is supposed to be there with her. So that's one thing that they're already getting wrong. And what I love about this story is I think Jesus does recreate in really beautiful ways the test for adultery because he removes the male accusers. <laughs> one by one, they all leave mm-hmm. until it's just her and God. It's just her and Jesus. And none of these men get to be part of that. None of them get to kind of hang around and give her a hard time. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't actually enact the penalty for adultery. He does want her to grow and to experience renewal in her life. He says, go and sin no more. So he's not like, oh, no one cares about that anymore. (laughs) Um, I think he does still care about sexual uh, integrity, you know, and fidelity, but his concern is not her death. He wants her to have new life. And I do think that's what, that is Christ's desire for us is that we would repent from sin. And when we are caught in it, either convicted by the Holy spirit or somehow in the context of community that we would come face to face with that and, and repent from that. Uh, But that he wants to lead us into something new, not just punish us for the past. I love this passage so much in light of Uh, what we just read before, because I've heard so many people speculate on what Jesus might be writing in Mm -hmm. the ground, but I've never heard someone say, do you think he's recreating, grabbing the dust off of the ground in test for adultery? And I think, I think that's part of what he's doing is saying like, I got a better way to do this. Um, And so he reaches to the ground, which is also a way of like even illustrating what the temple is now, um, really, mm-hmm. that it's it's not just in one place, but it's wherever we meet the Lord. Um, and so this idea of where the test for adultery was getting the dust of the tabernacle, he is now experiencing this kind of dust of wherever Jesus is. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's, I'm so glad you said that Jamie, because it does say he's in the temple. So I do think it's so fascinating that they're trying to catch him in not knowing the law as well as they do. And he knows it better. Mm-hmm. Cause like you're pointing out, he is actually doing the test for adultery, um, and is recreating that with the dust of the ground on the temple and removing her male accusers. Um, so, I mean, in this case, there is still like, apparently she's caught, like we do know for sure, Mm -hmm. um, that she was guilty, but I do think that's really beautiful that Jesus is connecting with the law. I think even deeper than Mm -hmm. they do. And there is, if, if some of y'all may have a note in your Bible that this section of scripture is added later, that it's not, it doesn't appear in all manuscripts of the sec, this section in John, But because I think it ties so clearly with the rest of scripture, to me, that is evidence that it is inspired. Like it is meant to be in the scripture and it's just for whatever reason, 
is not consistently in every manuscript, but does fit really clearly with the wider narrative of scripture. And I would just say it, honestly, it benefits no one for it to be added later. Like it's not, yeah, certainly not benefiting <laughs> the people in power. <laughs> um, so I think there's something to that, even where I'm like, who would, who would add this? It's kind of a wild story about Jesus, um, especially without, you know, knowing the law. And so I think there's something there where you can kind of trust the, there's no like extra motives at play. In adding <laughs> right. <this in. laughs> a fair point. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Did you have anything else about either of these passages, Jamie? No, let's um, head back to numbers. Okay. So we want to land. We promised that we wanted to give you a hopeful note. Now, I think we have still, I believe, mm-hmm. found the hope of the Lord throughout this whole discussion. But uh, while we are still in the Torah, we need to talk about some very important special women, and they are the daughters of Zelophehad. And so we're going to be in Numbers 27. Um, and actually, Jamie, would you like to read it? I'm putting you on the spot, but I know that you love this passage so much. I do so much. I will. I think my Bible just kind of flips open there. So it'll be a quick, <laughs> easy. <laughs> Meanwhile, it flipped open because I had a tab in it to Deuteronomy. So I didn't realize I was in Deuteronomy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this so we're going to read, we're picking it up um, after there's a census where, um, they're basically saying the sons of this man and this tribe um, get this land and they're coming into um, the taking account for who is with them as they come into the promised land because it's been a long time. And so they're coming into the promised land basically with a new generation of people. And so mm-hmm. as they're um, kind of dividing up the land, they're saying this is who we have with us. Um, so then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machar, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting saying, our father died in the wilderness He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord and the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. He had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers, and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So again, this is, we're seeing illustration of the inheritance uh, laws and beauty of that. So a couple of things are happening here. So one, Jamie did a great job of reading it and setting it up. So the people are still in the wilderness right now. This is important for us because it is going to speak to the magnitude of what the women are asking. So they have been born in the wilderness. They're, they're the previous generation, their parents' generation rebelled against the Lord. They were unwilling 
to believe that the promised land was good and that God would lead them into it. And they freaked out and they had a meltdown on the edge of the promised land. And so the Lord was like, well, if you don't want to go in, you don't have to stay in the wilderness. You'll eventually die there. And then your children are the ones who are going to go in and take possession of the land. And so right now the, the promised land is still just a dream. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it exists, they know where it is, but it's not something that they have achieved yet. They have not yet conquered the land. It's going to be a pretty big process for them to enter the land. And so right now it's still this kind of, it's a theoretical, but what's happening is these women are dreaming about the land and they're visualizing themselves there. And they have grown weary of being in the wilderness. They're like, this sucks. This can't be all there is. Let's think about what else might happen in the future. And so they're picturing themselves in the promised land and they're realizing like, man, we don't have any brothers in our family, but God said, he's going to give it to us as an inheritance. And we believe that. So why don't we just ask, like, let's just ask, (laughs) like, can women, can we just have our family's inheritance, even if there's no sons in our family? And God is like, heck yes. Great idea. (laughs) And it, and numbers goes through the, the detail of at the end of the book in chapter 36, verse 10, it says, and then the daughters of Zelophehad had received the land mm-hmm. that they were promised. So numbers really like goes to the, the trouble of letting us know the thing that they ask for does indeed come to pass. And so I think what's so beautiful about this passage, there's so many layers to it, but they are dreaming of what else might be possible. They're looking at what is and they feel discontent with that. And they're talking to each other and they're thinking about what they know about God. And they're like, I bet something else could be possible. And let's just ask God for it. And let's believe that maybe in the promised land, women could inherit land and that God wants us to be there. So why would he prevent us from being there? Let's just go off of faith and our belief in who God is. And I think that's what's part of what God is doing through the law when he doesn't eliminate evil, even though I wish he would, I wish he would just say, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do that. Um, But I think part of what he's doing is he's giving humanity this wilderness time uh, that we're kind of morally and ethically in this wilderness where we are kind of testing the limits of evil. And he wants us to grow weary with the way things have been. And this process is necessary for humanity to finally start to dream about how things could be. And because women bear the brunt of evil, it's fitting that we are the biggest dreamers, that throughout history, it's so often been women who are the spark that catalyzes change. So I want us to know from this whole episode and reading these passages, it's okay to be unsettled by what feels like the anemia of the law, like the inadequacy of the law, because we're meant to long for more. Mm -hmm. We're meant to long for the Messiah and for the new heavens and the new earth. And in a way it is profoundly feminine to say that the way things are is not the way they have to be. And I think about just in modern history alone, we have so many examples of women who were weary with the way things were and said, maybe something else is possible. You know, women like Sojourner Truth 
and Rosa Parks and Diane Nash and Betty Friedan, the women who started Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. our other modern heroes, Rachel Denhollander, Allie Raisman, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, all women who looked at the world and said, that's not good enough. And we refuse to accept the works of evil. So from the Hebrew midwives through today, God loves and blesses his daughters of resistance who dream about what else could be. So we have permission and encouragement from God to lean into our dissatisfaction because that dissatisfaction will lead us closer to the heart of God and the created order of what he desired us to experience. I think something that I love about this is these women go before Moses, the chiefs and all the leaders basically. And so there's something about, um, their capacity to dream that has filled them with great courage as well. And so there's this, they are facing literally every form of power. And they're saying, we actually trust in God's character more than anything. And I think that mm -hmm. has to be what fuels our dreaming of what's possible is that there's something in the character of God that would say the promised land has to be different. There's something that makes me think about this and something I want to point out just in light of the other passages that we've studied today is that the Moses also gets from the Lord. Um, if you read on from there, the women are to choose their own husbands. And I think that's really significant in light of these passages too, that they get to pick who they marry and that God makes sure to tell that to them that just because you have land now doesn't mean other people get to tell you what to do with it, but that part of what it looks like for them to enter into the promised land is to have autonomy over that part of their lives as well, which I think is really beautiful in light of some of the troubling passages that we've read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And I think part of what we want to leave you with is an invitation to say, we don't pretend to have all the answers. We are not saying that now you should feel awesome about these passages. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is still a lot of mystery. And I think there's something really beautiful about at the end of the day, I don't worship my own certainty. I worship the Lord, who is the God who sees, who is compassionate, who is abounding in love and slow to anger as he reveals himself. And I really believe that there's something that we should cling to in the character of God, that we see his compassion in those glimpses, even in hard passages. But if that's not enough for you, God is okay with that. God is okay mm -hmm. with the wrestling. And I've just been so encouraged lately about this way that mystery, I think, is an invitation outside of ourselves, that we worship a God who in some ways part of the beauty of him is that we cannot know him fully, that we live our entire lives in an eternity trying to discover more of God's nature and his character and that he is beyond our comprehension. And so there's something about that that is an invitation to us. And it's an invitation to wrestle because he's okay with that. And I think God is an inviter of those places. And I hope that it only leads to more of like these 
daughters of Zelophehad, that discovery of God's nature and the fact that he does answer us. And he does say to the daughters of Zelophehad, they are right. Like, Mm -hmm. I love that he answers Moses in that way. And so whether or not, um, you know, we have moments of certainty like that, of like, you are right. Um, I don't think that's really the point of our wrestling. I think it's an invitation to know God and to be known by him in the midst of our questions. And so we hope that, um, we hope that that's been a part of your experience today, that it's been something where you leave with maybe more questions and get to uncover some of those uh, together. We also just want to say thank you to all of you who shared about this podcast in the last week, who participated in our giveaway. And we are just so thankful that you are telling your friends and talking about it with folks. We are grateful that you are finding this content to be helpful. And so thank you for sharing it widely and with your networks and friends. Yes. Yeah, it's been tremendous. We've been so encouraged by the responses and the messages that we've received from all of you. So know that it does connect with us. It encourages us so much and we're so appreciative. And within that, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already to make sure that you are getting new episodes as they become available. And sharing helps others discover the podcast. So keep sharing it. And if you get a chance, go ahead and rate and review the podcast either in in whatever app you're using. And that helps other people find the podcast. So thank you so much for being part of the conversation and for helping others uncover their place in God's story. Thanks for digging in with us today.